to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 114 where we go back, back to the, to past, the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every week on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and weekdays on ABC right after Oprah. Oh, I love it. Yay! <laughs> now, this week, we're going to be uh, starting a new series uh, of episodes here where we're going to discuss action comics, but not just regular old action comics. This is Hal Jordan's action comics. Oh! Because Hal Jordan was the man in action comics for uh, almost a year. Yep. And uh, we're going to be discussing Action Comics Weekly issues one. I'm sorry, 601 through 642, but this week we're just going to cover up to issue 614. Mm. So uh, well, we'll start by uh, asking a simple question. What is Action Comics? Well, it's a comic book, and uh, the first issue hit shelves on April 18th, 1938. Uh, we actually just had that 80th anniversary that... Uh, Coincided with the 1,000th issue of Action Comics. Mm -hmm. And this was the first appearance of Superman. And a whole bunch of people you don't care about. Uh, Though, in fairness, your Zatara mileage may vary. If I recall, there was a lumberjack hero in that issue that was quite exciting. I can't remember any other details. Yes, he was pretty, pretty great. (laughs) Uh, Now, despite having beaten Detective Comics to its 1,000th issue, Action actually didn't come first. Uh, Detective Comics number one shipped with a March 1937 cover date to Action Comics' June 1938 cover date. And actually, part of the reason Action was able to hit 1,000 first was due to the events that we're going to discuss today. That is, going weekly for a year. Uh, now, back to back to the golden age here. For a thin dime, a reader could get a whole lot of content. Not all of it great or even good. <laughs> Again, your Zatara mileage. But plenty there. of it. That was the thing. But you know? plenty of it. Uh, now, as the Golden Age wore on, the page count would drop in order to avoid raising the price. Superman would remain as the lead feature, and he was followed by backups of Tommy Tomorrow and Congo Bill. Which were also quite boring. And, of course, I can never think of Tommy Tomorrow without thinking of Arnold Drake. Arnold Drake. Singing is, nobody <laughs> likes to do Tommy Tomorrow. Uh, characters introduced in the earlier days of Action Comics include Lois Lane, right there in Action Comics number one. Jimmy Olsen in Action Comics number six, November 1939. This is sometimes disputed because he's unnamed in that issue, right? Yeah, he's just uh, a red-haired he's guy. Just a red-haired, yeah. He's a red-haired kid basically filling the role, but they never say... Jimmy, but, you know, he, he's pretty much Jimmy. Uh, Lex Luthor in Action Comics number 23, April 1940, cover date. 
Toy Man, an Action Comics 64, September 1943, cover date. Supergirl, an Action Comics 252, May 1959, cover date. And we discussed that first appearance way back in episode oh, yeah. two of the Cosmic Treadmill. Uh, that is available in the archives. That was pre-vocal also, talent, wasn't that, I believe? <laughs> it was. Well I, well, I think we're still pre-vocal talent. Oh, that's but, uh, true. Yeah. This, that, that was before we did voices. Yeah. Uh, and we also have The Parasite, uh, created by a very young Jim Shooter. First appearance at... Action Comics 340, August 1966, cover date. They also brought in a bunch of concepts to Superman's world, like The Power of Flight in Action Comics number 13, June 1939, cover. X-Ray Vision in Action Comics number 18, November 1939, cover date. Super Breath in Action Comics number 23, April 1940, cover date. It's been around for like 70 years, and we still haven't thought of a better way to say super breath. <laughs> uh, we have uh, the first appearance of the Fortress of Solitude. That was Action Comics number 241, June 1958, cover date. And the Bizarro World. We were introduced to that back in Action Comics number 262, April 1960, cover date. And then they reached the peak of Superman creation and never, mm-hmm. never again. In, <laughs> into the Bronze Age, Superman would remain the leading feature and would usually, though not always, be followed by an action plus backup, which would be a bit of a rotating spot and featured Green Arrow and Black Canary and Metamorpho, other times Human Target or the Atom and Airwave. Yeah, so we promise is not the Hal Jordan we're going to be discussing today. That's just today, though. Is either good news or bad news, I don't know. <laughs> uh, now, several issues throughout the mid to late 1970s were 100-page spectaculars. Um, we also had, of the in the 1970s, Action Comics number 500. That was October 1979 cover date, and this would feature a look at Superman's complete history up to that point. Uh, a very fun issue. I uh, highly recommend it to, to check out. Uh, especially if you're interested in in some of the pre-crisis conceits of uh, Superman. Um, then we have some characters and concepts that were introduced in the pages of the Action Comics during the Bronze Age. We met Vixen in Action Comics number 521, July 1981 cover date. Lex Luthor's power armor. That was uh, created by George Perez, right? Yes. Or yes, designed was, by him, at least. Uh, designed, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he put it together. Uh, that was uh, Action Comics 544, June 1983. Uh, cover date. Uh, also, Brainiac's more robotic form. And that was the same issue, Action Comics 544. And also, The Forgotten Heroes, one issue later. Action Comics number 545, July 1983, cover date. And this was a collection of, at the time, Forgotten Heroes. And that included Animal Man. Cave Carson, pre-cybernetic or interstellar eye. <laughs> Congorilla, Con- Dolphin, Rick Flagg, uh, who would go on to join the Suicide Squad and lead it for a while. Yep. Uh, Rip Hunter, the Time Master, before he was Booster Gold's father, because Booster Gold wasn't around yet. And the Immortal Man. So, I think they just brought back the Immortal Man in... In the, the New Age book, of Heroes? The New Age of Heroes. Uh... Out of all those, I think the only one I have haven't can't think of having ever come back was Kong in any kind of real way was Kong Gorilla. He showed up uh, right before Flashpoint. He was a member of the Justice League, but uh, oh. it was very short, very short lived. Because then Flashpoint happened anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so following Crisis on Infinite Earths and after blowing through a bunch of weird inventory stories, including an issue that riffs on the French comic Asterisks, uh, Action Comic. I like that one. But anyway, <laughs> Action Comics would feature the second and final chapter of Alan Moore's Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, which is Action Comics number five eighty three, September nineteen eighty six, cover date. Immediately following this issue, well, 
immediately after the three-month hiatus that followed the issue, John Byrne would take over the Superman line and Action Comics would become a Superman team-up book, taking the place of the recently canceled DC Comics Presents, which was itself a Superman team-up book. Yeah. Uh, during the Action Comics uh, one, he would team up with some heavy and not-so-heavy hitters in the post-crisis DCU, including uh, the Noonteed Titans, Green Lantern Corps, Phantom Stranger, Demon, the Etrigan the Demon, and New Gods, and Hawkman. And also, of course, there was that two-parter where Superman and Big Barda, maybe or maybe not, but definitely did make a pornography you can never film. forget that one. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Byrne would take Action Comics up to its landmark 600th issue. That was May 1988 cover date. But after that, there was change in the air. Hmm, Action Comics would become a weekly book. So what is Action Comics Weekly? Well, before we answer that, let's briefly discuss the would-be weekly that was going to come before this and feature the uh, characters that DC acquired from Charlton Comics. In 1983, Charlton Comics wasn't in the best of health, and <laughs> I guess we could argue that they were in their death throes. I would but, say uh, <laughs> so, yeah. And so uh, Paul Levitz was able to acquire their Action Heroes characters for $5,000 apiece. And he did this as a wow. gift for uh, Dick Giordano. Uh, but... What are you going to do with all these properties? You know, and Chris, it just occurred to me just how cheap that is. Like, Right? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> like, just walking away with them. Anyway, go ahead. Exactly. $5,000 a piece. I mean, you you can make a – I mean, what the question was in some of the Justice League cartoons, I'm sure. <laughs> no, I'm just I – mean, I wonder if Paul Levitz was like, you got any more characters first? You want to make, right. make up a handful and buy those off you? <laughs> Now, uh, Dick Giordano's original plan was to begin reprinting the Charlton characters' old adventures in order to uh, introduce them to the DC Comics audience before spinning out into new stories and series. Uh, DC's marketing department put the kibosh on that. Uh, probably for the best, considering Crisis on Infinite Earths was ever looming on the horizon and anything they would have started would have very likely been, you know, stifled. Crushed away, yeah. Yeah. Uh, around 1984, the direct market was becoming a viable option for distribution, and Giordano decided that perhaps the best way of using the Charlton Action Heroes would be in a more experimental weekly anthology format. Or this this was to be Comics Cavalcade Weekly, or initially it was Blockbuster Weekly. Mm -hmm. uh, the Action Heroes would be featured in what was described as extended Sunday newspaper comic strips. DC's own syndicated newspaper strip, The World's Greatest Superheroes, from 1978, would also be included to tie it in with the rest of the D DC line. It was a pretty serious pitch and very nearly came to be. There was an unpublished cover drawn by Dave Gibbons, who was working on another project at the same time where he wasn't allowed to draw the Charlton characters. You might... You, you might have heard of that one, right? Yeah, that might hmm. something, something you definitely should watch out for you know yes <laughs> now, now blockbuster or uh whatever though we comics uh, cavalcade. comics cavalcade weekly uh we had uh a lot of the old charlton gang in uh on the uh production of it we had uh pete marisi he was on board to contribute a peter cannon dot 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 thunderbolt script a uh, strip uh frank mclaughlin was to contribute a judo master strip Steve Englehart was going to update the Blue Beetle with art by David Ross and Alex Nino. Uh, was going to later be Chaz Trog. Uh, some of the changes made to the Beetle, we were going to be introduced to uh, Ted Cord's wife, who was unaware that he and the Blue Beetle were one and the same. That could have gotten dicey, I think. It could have. <laughs> uh, Keith Giffen, he'd write and draw Peacemaker. Robert Lauren Fleming would script. 
Mike W. Barr was supposed to write the question with art by Stan Walk or Watch Walk. Uh, and Giordano himself would work the Sergeant Steel Sarge Steel strip with artist Trevor Von Eden. I don't know why he had such an affinity for Sarge Steel. Yeah. Uh, uh, and finally, uh, Captain Adam was going to get the creative team of Paul Kupperberg and Dennis Cowan. Originally, Paul Chadwick, uh, the guy who does concrete, was going to provide art for that. Uh, now, stories were outlined several weeks out. Uh, we might actually include some images of uh, of some of the synopsises okay. uh, on the site here. I know logos and were done, too, for Cavalcade and Blockbuster, mm-hmm. so we can throw those in. Absolutely. And uh, Charlton was uh, to be established as being on DC's Earth-5. Of course, we now recognize that the Charlton Earth is Earth-4. Um, but none of this came to pass. It didn't matter because, anyway. <laughs> because crisis. Uh, now, post-crisis, DC's editorial had some different ideas for the Charlton characters. So that weekly anthology taking place on another Earth wasn't going to happen. But the idea of a weekly anthology series must have remained in the back of somebody's mind, and uh, that somebody was DC editor Mike Gold. Uh, by the way, for more information on the rise and fall of Charlton Comics and the fallout of the characters here, you can check out episodes 7 and 8 of Weird Comics History in the Archives. And they're also available on weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com as a box set. It was a box set volume 8. Oh, boy. I want to get the whole collection. Mm-hmm. Action Comics Weekly is looked at as an attempt by DC to do an anthology book like those done in Britain. The weekly title had five rotating eight-page features on a two-page Superman strip. It also did carry a price tag of $1.50. For just some context, DC's regular line of comics, that is to say the non-new format, was priced at $0.75, so at twice the cost, four to five times a month. Mm -hmm. That's asking a lot of uh, kids' pocket change. It is. Uh, To follow Action Comics Weekly, you're looking at a $6 to $7.50 Investment per month. Uh, that's $1988. Today would be $3.27 an issue now, which is actually pretty low compared to what they actually still ask you to pay <laughs> monthly. Uh, still $13.08 to $16.35 uh, per month in today's dollars. So mm-hmm. it adds up, folks. Those comics better be good and they better have some nice characters. Like besides Green Lantern, what other features were in Action Comics Weekly? Uh, Superman, a two-page Sunday newspaper-style strip drawn by Kurt Swan, would appear in every issue, appearing at the Staples, right at the you know centerfold, excluding the two crossovers, 635 and 642. Superman would appear in both of those. He just wouldn't have this two-page centerfold thing, right? Yeah. Uh, Black Canary, number 609 to 619, and then it, she came back for 624 to 634. Black Hawk was in issue 601 to 608, then from 615 to 622, and then again from 628 to 634. Catwoman had a little series from 611 through 614. Dead Man had a few shots from 601 to 612, then again from 618 to 621, and then finally another one from 623 to 626. Uh, the Demon, Etrigan, would have his own run from issues 636 to 641. Hero Hotline, one of Chris and my favorites, would be yes. from issues 637 to 640. Then Human Target was just in issue 641. Nightwing from issue 613 to 618. And then came back from 627 to 634 with two chapters in number 627. 
Mm-hmm. The Phantom Lady had a run from 6.36 to 6.41. The Phantom Stranger, he, he was all over the place. <laughs> he really liked putting us to sleep, and he returned a lot. Uh, he was in issue 6.10, then he had a two-issue run, 6.13 to 6.14. Then he came back for 6.17, again for 6.23. Then he had a long, long run from oh, yeah. 6.31 to 6.34. Three issues. <laughs> then he came back for 6.36. And finally, he came back for 641. You know, you give some guys a standing invitation, they just take take advantage of it, you know what I mean? Come and go like the wind. Uh, now, The Secret Six had a couple of runs from issue 601 to 612, and then again from 619 to 630. Shazam, a.k.a. Captain Marvel, was from 623 to 626. Speedy from 636 to 640. Starman appeared in issue 622, and Wild Dog made his debut in 601 to 609, then came back from 615 to 622, and came back again from 636 to 641, almost to the very last issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we, we talked about a little before the episode, we'll probably go back over time and do these other runs Some also of these runs, in, yeah. in the weekly, but Hal Jordan, the Green Lantern is the big boy, so. He is, he is. But uh, we have to get him to this uh, to this Action <laughs> yeah. Comics Weekly, and how are we going to do that? Well, we got to wrap up Green Lantern Corps, the, the series. Uh, now, it's been suggested that the ongoing Green Lantern Corps title was canceled with an eye toward bolstering the popularity of Action Comics Weekly by using Green Lantern as the lead feature. Uh, suggestion, suggested as in... It, Almost definitely was. Yeah. Uh, in a, actually, it was definitely that way. Uh, in a moment, we're going to read a bit from the final letters page of Green Lantern Corps volume, uh, which will confirm this for us. Uh, now, Green Lantern would indeed be the lead feature in all but one of the issues he appears in. But we won't be discussing that one today, I don't think. Uh, now, Green Lantern issue 200 came with a May 1986 cover date. The story was called Five Billion Years by Steve Englehart and Joe Staten. This is the final issue of the volume with the title Green Lantern. Uh, here, the Guardians of the Universe and the Z- Zamorans, they head into a spatial rift together in order to Ooh. do it. <laughs> <clears throat> so they, they basically, you know, leave and tell the Lanterns, you know, be excellent to each other. And yeah. Stuff. Don't, uh, don't, cor- don't knock on the door if you hear us making any noise, you know. Just uh, stay fact. downstairs. <laughs> yeah, so the core is left to their own devices. They're left to police themselves. Uh, Green Lantern Corps number 201, that was June of that year, setting up shop by Englehart and Staten. The remaining Lanterns, which is to say all the popular ones that you would know by <laughs> sight, wind up heading to Earth. Salak and Chip take the scenic route, but do finally get there. Uh, they had originally planned on returning to their home sectors, only to learn that the, in, that the events of Crisis on Infinite Earths had altered their home planets. Our core, really a cool addition there. Uh, they, yeah. like Chip went back home and like he was dead. Because like, uh, uh, <laughs> in the post-crisis world, he had died, but he was there. It was very interesting stuff. Like, what? You know, then the, psych- <laughs> the psycho pirate didn't even show up anyway. But uh, <laughs> our core includes Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Aricia, Kat Matui, Chip Salak, and a brand new poser you may know now called Kilowog. <laughs> this issue is called Setting Up Shop, so it should come as no surprise that that's exactly what happens here. They set up a citadel and fight some D-level supervillains. 
and it's pretty great. Kilowog just shows up, and they're just like, "Who are you?" And yeah, like I'm Kilowog. They're like, "Okay, come come live with us." And you'll be the most uh, important guy later. You know? <laughs> yes. Uh, now we fast forward to Green Lantern Corps number two twenty two. This is March nineteen eighty eight cover date. Story is called "The Last Testament of Sinestro" by Englehart and Staten. Uh, Sinestro has been caught, and the Green Lantern Corps ain't screwing around anymore. And so they put Sinestro on trial, and they find him guilty for all the jerky things he's done throughout the years. Uh, and this leads to a sort of interesting discussion among the Lanterns about capital punishment. Uh, some are for it, some are against it. It's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, ultimately, they beam their decision into the central power power battery and let it tabulate the results. So everybody who says kill him, everybody who says you know, incarcerate him, it all goes in there, and then the battery spits it out, the result. And uh, the result is Sinestro is sentenced to death. And... Uh, so the lanterns circle around him, and he wa- Sinestro warns him that it ain't a good idea. What else? Right? I don't think you should kill me, and let me tell you why. I it's want to live. It's a bad idea. <laughs> now, and then get this: the Green Lantern Corps kills mm-hmm. Sinestro. Yeah. And uh, we're not talking about nameless lantern, you know, like a broccoli floret lantern or anything. This is actually like <laughs> Hal, John, Katma, Aresia, Kilowog, among others. They're actually have their rings you know, aimed on them, yeah, just, and they just kill them. them yeah. <laughs> and no sooner does Sinestro perish than Salak rushes into the scene, hopeful that the core didn't do what he thinks they just did. Mm, bad news, Salak. Mm-hmm. In Green Lantern Corps number 223, April 1988, cover date, The Last Testament of the Green Lantern Corps by Engelhart and Gil Kane. Uh, here we learn about why Sinestro thought it was a bad idea to kill him, and for once he wasn't lying. While Salak was away from the Corps, he visited Oa during the year 5716. Uh, then it's left barren and empty. He asked himself how this could have happened, and the planet itself appears to answer him. Everything's gone to pot because the Green Lanterns killed Sinestro in 1988. Mm-hmm. And before we can get any clarification, the central power battery starts going on the fritz. The science cells all open up, unleashing hundreds of criminals. The zombie lantern Drick falls to pieces. Power rings deactivate. Looks like a bad time for everyone all around. Mm-hmm. After locking the criminals in an Owen museum, lantern Kursma. Kursma. Prisma? Kursma? Kursma enters the psychic psychic trance in hopes of connecting with whatever's left of the power battery to shed a little light on what's going on. You know, when you read these comics, you never think you're going to have to say these names aloud. Right? That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that means it's time for a history lesson. Now, we're only going to go back a little while, just 10 billion years. Uh, Now, at that point, the Guardians of the Universe... Well, they stopped dying. <laughs> they turned immortal. Uh, now, they left their home planet of Maltus, and they headed to the center of the universe, which we know is Oa. While there, they would create the Manhunters, oh. who uh, look a lot more like Dr. Manhattan during this flashback. They don't look like the Manhunters. Uh, yeah. Then again, they're not wearing their, their helmets. So yeah, that, that, that's what really makes a Manhunter, I think, <laughs> is that outfit. And uh, actually, we have uh, one group of Guardians creating the Manhunters, and then another group of Guardians would focus all of their energies into growing and shaping a green crystal. And this crystal would ultimately become the central power battery. Now, as we know, no matter how you slice it, the Manhunters are a bad idea. And so they were deactivated or turned sleeper or whatever the hell it was so they could do the Millennium (laughs) thing uh, around this time. Now, uh... 
Also around this time, the Guardians began to change physically. Their heads grew larger and their bodies smaller, so they're more uh, more what we're used to seeing when we think of a Guardian. Yeah. Um, and they really got into their work, and as such, they became estranged from their wives and children. Uh, we, we probably ought to mention that all the Guardians were men. They were all dudes. Uh, and so the women folk decided to skedaddle. Which brings us all the way up to just two and a half billion years ago. Wow, we're just chugging right along, boy. Right? <laughs> just moved a whole bunch of time in there. So the women folk would arrive on Korrigar. Hey, we know people from there. That's right. We know two of them. We know Ketmatui and Sinestro. Mm. And the immortal Owen women would mate with the immortal Corrigan men. The, or- the Owen women would grow to hate their former mates, the Guardians, and those women would also attempt to undergo physical transformations of their own, reddening their skin to match their new lovers. It doesn't work, but somehow resulted in the creation of the Star Sapphire, so there's that answer for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Owen women would travel to and conquer another planet, ultimately become the Zamorans that we know now. At one subboard, the Guardians caught wind of this, and we were pretty ticked off to have been replaced in bed by the Korrigarians, but where were you guys, tinkering with your who's-its and what's-its over there? Come on now. Uh, After a meeting of council, they realized they're just feeling jealousy. It'd be best to put it all behind them. So they vowed then and there never to do anything more severe than confining a Korrigarian. You get where we headed? I'm not even sure what we're talking about anymore. Okay, so, you see, in order to keep themselves honest and their male egos in check, the Guardians vowed never to kill a Korrigarian, regardless of provocation. Because it could be seen that they're, you know, mm. mad that they're scheming on their women. That's the thing. Uh-huh. So, to make it official, they ordered the central power battery to return to nothingness if they ever cross that line. <laughs> a line that unwittingly the Lantern Corps crossed when they off Sinestro. Ah, it all makes sense. This brings us right to the final issue of Green Lantern Corps. That's number 224. Came with a May 1988 cover date. Story's called The Ultimate Testament by Joey Cavalieri and Gil Kane. Final issue, of course, and it ain't all that great. Uh, longtime creative team of Englehart and Staten are replaced by Cavalieri and uh, Kane in order to turn the, the lights out. And anytime I see Joey Cavalieri on a, on a book, it's yeah. like, okay, this is either the last issue or the second to last issue. I know the series is coming to an end. That's it. That's what he's like. He's the pinch hitter to bring it That's to the it. end. Yeah. <laughs> he is the undertaker. Mm. Uh, now, in the story, the central power battery, of course, is destroyed. Hal fights the yellow impurity in the form of Sinestro. And the core is no more. Ta-da. Yeah, the most interesting part of this issue is actually a missive written by Mark Wade that precedes the letters page. And uh, we were just going to cut little bits of this and include it, but it really is a fitting send-off to the volume, and uh, it really puts a cap on on the entire run of the Green Lantern. So we're going to read all of it. Uh, In it, he says... This is it, boys and girls. News in the comics biz travels faster and faster with each ensuing year. And it should be no secret to most of you that you're holding the final issue of the Green Lantern Corps, DC Comics' sixth longest-running title. Uh, Now, the same month we saw a release of Action Comics number 600, Detective Comics number 586, Adventures of Superman number 440, and Batman 419. Uh, so I'm not really. Uh, mm. yeah, Green Lantern Corps was indeed the sixth longest running. Mm. We couldn't tell you which one was Flash? the fifth. No, no, because <laughs> no, Flash was already in his second vo- yeah, uh, yeah. The, the Wally volume. Right. Um, I, I did a little digging, and uh, Tales of the Legion of Superheroes did hit issue 354. Uh, but maybe. that was canceled back in December 1987. 
and really plenty of canceled books made it past issue 224. So Absolutely, I'm really not yeah. sure what Wade is talking is. about. <laughs> uh, back to Wade, he says, Green Lantern number one, cover dated August 1960, reintroduced comic readers to test pilot turned superhero Hal Jordan, who had enjoyed a successful tryout in Showcase the previous year. Writer John Broom and penciler Gil Kane followed Jordan over and began crafting what were, at the time, groundbreaking science fiction adventure tales under the guidance of editor Julius Schwartz. Few artists could equal, and none could beat, the graceful power Kane consistently conveyed, and no DC writer then working was more adept to characterization than Broom. Broom, who also scripted The Flash, was definitely ahead of his time in his ability to humanize his heroes and pull them slightly away from the stereotypical DC heroes of the day, always near godlike in their perfection. It continues, in that first issue, readers were introduced to the Guardians of the Universe, though paradoxically Hal Jordan was not. His awareness of the true significance and vastness of the Green Lantern Corps was something that would evolve gradually over the first two years of the series. It wasn't until Green Lantern number six that Hal met any other acting Green Lanterns, and not until issue 11 that he was allowed to meet the Guardians face to face. From that point on, the Green Lantern Corps played an important part in this series, as Hal fought alongside his peers from time to time when menaces too great for his power alone read their ugly heads, such as in issue number 30, in which Hal first met Green Lantern named Katmatui. Green Lantern was DC's premier space opera for the first decade of its existence. He continues, Writer Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams broke new ground in Green Lantern number 76, cover dated April 1970. Suddenly, Hal Jordan found himself less concerned with solving the problems of nameless extraterrestrials than he did exploring the trials and tribulations of the human race itself. During this period, and up until the time of its first cancellation, Green Lantern and his new partner Green Arrow dealt with the issues of the day, such as overpopulation, pollution, drug abuse, and, in a tale that introduced future Lantern John Stewart, racism. However, while the series showed a healthy vitality, sales were not as healthy. With the coming advent of horror and martial arts comics, superheroes were temporarily on the wane, and Green Lantern number 89, that's April to May 1972 cover date, was the final issue. Now, uh, cutting in here, uh, Green Lantern's adventures, sometimes teamed with Green Arrow, would take up residence in the Flash book in the form of backups, which started with issue 217. That's August, September 1972 cover date. Uh, this continues for a short while. In 1976, Schwartz, O'Neill, and new penciler Mike Grell resurre resurrected the Emerald Gladiator. Though still paired with Green Arrow, the menaces he faced were slightly more in keeping with the earlier flavor of the book. GL once more got involved with interstellar threats, and when the powers that be at DC decided that the green, green Team had finally run its course, was restored to solo star status in his own book in Green Lantern number 123. In the ensuing years, GL enjoyed the services of a number of talented artists and writers, such as Marv Wolfman, Joe Staten, Mike W. Barr, Alex Toth, Len Wein, Dave Gibbons, and many, many others. To keep the book fresh, DC tried a number of different approaches and gimmicks, including uh, introducing a semi-regular backup feature called Tales of the Green Lantern Corps that showcased Green Lanterns far and wide. It was a feature that proved to be quite popular. 
So popular, in fact, that they've never done it again for some reason. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, so popular, in fact, that when it became necessary to give the book a new direction some years ago, the regular creative team of Steve Englehart and Joe Staten, along with editor Andy Helfer, took their cue from that feature and in issue 201 devoted the series to the Green Lantern Corps. Continues, Englehart and Staten have brought a number of new ideas and concepts to this book over the two-year period, and both gentlemen can be proud of what they've accomplished in these pages. Both men dearly love the Green Lantern mythos and have given their all to maintain the high level of quality evident in this series from the first days of the 1960s. And then we finally get to the paragraph where, which gets to what we're talking about here. He says, Now they turn the reins over to writer Peter David and penciler Todd Smith, who continue the Green Lantern tradition in the new Action Comics Weekly. Join them there as they chronicle the ever-continuing story of Hal Jordan, Earth's first and finest Green Lantern. Except for, you know, that anyway. Uh, <laughs> so, a few things that we can say about this. It seems to us that Mark Wade put more thought into Hal Jordan than the writer of the final issue. I mean, really, yeah, this sure. is like the most glowing obituary anyone could hope to have. It's true. Uh, remember that, that an example of Engelhart's high level of quality includes, at this point, the very recently ended Millennium event. So uh-huh. they're not all winners. Uh, we, <laughs> we discussed that in long form during Weird Comics History, episode 21. That's available in the archives. Uh, also, Wade mentions that Peter David is the incoming writer, which isn't cr- quite true, not right away. Uh-huh. Uh, so we're going to jump right into Action Comics Weekly number 601 that came out, that was on the stands May 24th, 1988. Uh, cover features all of the characters appearing in this issue with a great big Superman in the middle drawn by Dave Gibbons. Uh, and it's called The Pain and the Pain Shall Leave My Heart by James Owsley and Gil Kane. So a little bio on James Christopher Owsley. He was born June 30th, 1961 in Hollis, Queens, New York. We now know him as Christopher Priest, uh, and actually more recently, I think, just as Priest. Just as Priest. Uh, Since we'll be quoting some of his later interviews, we're going to be referring to him interchangeably throughout the bio. They're all the same fella. So an interview with Vulture.com in 2018, Priest said, It was a fairly hostile environment, him growing up in Hollis, Queens, that is. I got beat up a lot in that environment. I was mugged in that environment. I had guns pointed at me in anger in that environment. I'd climb into the closet and just close the door and cut my hands over my ears and try to scream out this noise and just cry and go, I hate being poor. I can't stand being poor. But the closet offered another respite. He says, I'd go in there and I'd read comics. It was a big storage area and I would climb in there and I would put on a little lamp and that was the only place I could get away from the maniacs. Now, Owsley started out as a fan of DC Comics and then moved on to Marvel. Uh, He would enter comics as an intern for Marvel Comics in 1978 and would join the editorial team proper in 1979. He'd worked for Paul Lakin as the managing editor on Crazy Magazine, and he was the first African-American editor in the entire comic book industry. Uh, Streetwise, Owsley had a solo album uh, recorded under the stage name Hollis Stone that was released on vinyl in 1981. Uh, the cover photo, which was taken by Elliot R. Brown, shows Owsley standing in front of the Marvel Comics office building over at 575 Madison Avenue. 
Wow. Yeah. Please send uh, us the would... MP3s, please. Thank you. <laughs> yes, for sure. Uh, next, he assisted editor Larry Hama on the Conan titles and would make his professional debut as a writer with issue one of The Falcon. That was the four-issue miniseries, cover dated November 1983 through February 1984. He began writing Power Man and Iron Fist with issue number 11, November 1984 cover, and he was made full editor of the Spider-Man comic book line from 1985 to 1986. Uh, professional and personal disagreements would eventually lead to him uh, leaving Marvel. In that same Vulture.com interview, uh, then uh, Marvel editor-in-chief, uh, I believe Jim Shooter, recalled, he wasn't good at editing. He's obviously a smart guy, but he's had no interest in bureaucracy and wasn't dealing real well with getting people to work on time and keeping a schedule and all that stuff. That's important editor stuff. Yes. Priest recalled, uh, it was a terribly unhappy time in my life, both personally and professionally. Putting me in charge of Spider-Man was an incredibly bad call. Saddling me with several beloved staffers as creative talent on books that constituted over $2 million of Marvel's bottom line was a very bad idea. There was also a feeling among Marvel staff that Priest gave preferential treatment to African-American freelancers. According to a post on Priest's blog, digitalpriest.com, while waiting for paychecks to arrive, Priest had several black and one white freelancer hanging around his office one day. Priest recalls, the next morning my boss, Jim Shooter, appeared in my doorway and, embarrassed as hell, said others had raised a concern that I was firing all the white people and replacing them with black people. <laughs> he, <laughs> he felt the claim had no merit, but still, when several people he trusted had come to his office saying I was having a meeting with and attempting to organize the black creators at Marvel, he felt it his responsibility to look into it. Mm. Priest assured Shooter that there was no takeover planned, but he was pretty ticked off. He says, I wrote him a detailed memo, subject, white supremacy update, <laughs> identifying every black artist I was using, uh, what I was using them for, what the duration of the assignment was, and so forth, just so the next time someone comes into the EIC's office alarmed about a, quote, meeting in my office, the EIC would have something to show. I also included Bob Layton on the list, but he, Layton, was so light-skinned, he fooled me. And besides, he knew all the words to Earth, Wind, and Fire songs. <laughs> oh, now things really came to a head when Marvel was working on a project to relieve famine in Africa. That project was Heroes for Hope, cover dated 1985, starring the X-Men, uh, by Jim Stalin and Bernie Wrightson. In Priest's own words from his blog, he wrote, Dennis Cowan dropped by and mentioned, amused, that he'd seen the list of talent working on the Famine Relief Project. There wasn't a single African-American creator invited to participate. This actually amused me tremendously, and I went over the list myself to make sure, but, yep, no blacks have been thought of as the very best of their very best, and none of them were invited to work on this book. Tickled, I picked up the phone and called Larry Hama, telling him no blacks were on the list. Larry was hugely amused and suggested we do our own charity relief book for the poor white trash of Appalachia. He and I howled with laughter and then shook off the dumbness of it all and got on with our lives. Only a white staffer had overheard part of the conversation. I assume the notion of my recruiting Hama to do my own alternate charity book and some warped interpretation of my conversation with Hama had got reported down the hall to the X-Men office where the book was being developed. The editors became incensed and loudly demanded my head on a plate for, essentially, inciting the black talent to stop working for Marvel. I mean, this thing got blown to huge proportions, so much so that, by the end of the day, it was largely accepted as fact that I was organizing a walkout of black talent, and the, the EIC kind of put me and the X-Men editor in a room to negotiate a deal. 
The X-Men editor, who was likely Anna Senti, was not amused and refused to believe me when I said I had no intention of bad-mouthing the project. I was invited to participate, but I just chuckled and said, no affirmative action, please. And this just set the ad off into a screaming match that could be heard everywhere in the office. What is wrong with you? Why do you have to make a racial issue out of everything? In Vulture.com, Jim Shooter explains, I called him into my office and said, I have to fire you. And he said, thank you. <laughs> and I might have too. Uh, Priest yes. continued writing for Marvel even after Jim Shooter's departure, but he felt things were too tense there to keep soliciting work. His writing tenure on Power Man and Iron Fist concluded with Iron Fist's controversial death, number 125, September 1986, cover date. Priest had a run of as a writer on Green Lantern when the character was exclusive to the anthology series Action Comics Weekly, and hey, we're going to read that story that started it in a minute. Yes, but first, hop across the table and meet Gil Kane, and this is a very uh, brief look at Gil Kane, because yeah. he uh, he could very easily fill an episode just on his own. Uh, he was born Eli Katz on April 6, 1926, in, we're thinking, Riga, Latvia? I, would, I think Riga, yeah, maybe Riga? we're wrong. Yeah, or Riga, one of those. Somewhere in Latvia. Uh, his, <laughs> he wasn't there long, though, because his family would emigrate to the United States in 1929, and they would settle in Brooklyn, New York. His father sold poultry. Uh, Kane would attend the School of Industrial Art in Manhattan, however, did not graduate. Instead, he would take a job working for MLJ Archie Comics. He says, and his quote is very, very jumbled here, uh, but we will work our way through it. Yeah. Uh, From the time I was 15, I was going to up to comics offices. My first job came the next year at age 16. During my summer vacation, I went up and got a job working for MLJ in 1942. I was 16, and I'd already started my last year of high school— but I'd already gotten my job the summer before at MLJ, so I didn't want to give up my job. I quit school in the last grade. And he'd be <laughs> fired after working only three weeks at MLJ. Uh, while he was there, his job included doing a lot of the lesser work, which included drawing borders, drawing word balloons, and also finishing up unfinished artwork. Not long after that, Kane would find employment with Jack Binder's agency. He recalled it looked like an internment camp. There must have been 50 or 60 guys up there, all at drawing tables. You had to account for the paper that you took. This is where Gil would do his first pencil work, which the Binder boys, they weren't too keen on it. Another three weeks later, Crane would return to MLJ, where he'd receive his first official job. An Inspector Bentley of Scotland Yard feature in Pep Comics. This is now a public domain character. If anyone's feeling creative, they want to take over the Inspector Bentley uh, <laughs> story. Uh, Kane's earliest credited work was as inker for the Counterfeit Money Code, which appeared in Zip Comics number 14, May 1941, cover date. Throughout the 40s, he didn't work around the industry and even be a ghost artist for Jack Kirby and Courage a la Carte, which appeared in National Comics Adventure Comics number 91, May 1944, cover date. In 1949, Gill met Julius Schwartz, and the rest was about to become history. He co-created the Silver Age versions of Green Lantern, the Hal Jordan fella, and the Adam, Ray Palmer. Now, as the Silver Age wore on, uh, Kane would do some moonlighting under a pseudonym for Marvel Comics. These were Hulk stories appearing in Tales to Astonish, and his pseudonym was Scott Edward. Uh, He didn't remain pen-named for long, though. He'd eventually buck the trend of working under an alias and... uh, uh, make it a little bit easier for other artists to yeah. do so as well, it, I would assume. It was his cachet, too, that was able to do it, because they, they, yeah, they wanted sure. to advertise him, yeah. 
Certainly. Now, while at Marvel, Kane would co-create the characters Iron Fist and Morbius the Living Vampire, and he would take part in some seminal Amazing Spider-Man story arcs, including the death of Captain Stacy, also that story which challenged the comics code authority, uh, well, the one that depicted Harry Osborn as All being right. addicted to drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the one that was written at the behest of the United States Department of Health, Education, and Welfare that the comics code still didn't want to see. Uh, <laughs> we, talked, we talked more about that one during episode four of Weird Comics History. That was the Comics Code Authority Part 4, colon, Living Life Under the Code. Uh, he also wrote that one, or he also drew the one where that girl fell off the bridge that you might have heard of. Uh, Final Destination 5? I think that's no. what they called it. Yeah, all I remember is they said it was the George Washington Bridge, but it sure looked like the Brooklyn Bridge. I don't know what that was hmm. about. <laughs> uh, in 1968, Kane would publish a 40-page magazine format comics novel called His Name Is Dot 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 Savage, with scripting by Archie Goodwin. <coughs> Excuse me. And in 1971, one of the earliest of what we now consider to be graphic novels, a sci-fi story called Blackmark, published by Bentham Books. Throughout the 70s and 80s, Kane provided character designs to Hanna-Barbera and Ruby Spears, including the Centurions, which was co-created with Jack Kirby. Back to comics, Gil Kane, along with Marv Wolfman, introduced that new-look Brainiac that we mentioned earlier in Action Comics number 544, showed up with the purple and green uh, Lex Luthor. Mm. And some 57 issues later, he'd do some more work on Action Comics, and here it is. Yes, and we're finally <laughs> where we want to be. Uh, we open, this is, uh, of course, Action Comics number 601, we open with a monologue from the star Sapphire about how much she once loved Hal Jordan, but no longer. Now that love has turned to hate. So it's, you know, more of the same between same Hal and thing, Carol. Really, yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of Hal, he and his current underage main squeeze, Aresia, are currently crashing with his pal John Stewart and John's wife, Kat Matui. And, uh, you know, familiarity breeds contempt, uh, so it ain't going all that well at this point. Ben Franklin said, guests and fish go bad after <laughs> two days or three. That's like true. That. John says, look, Hal, you're my best friend and I love you, but you can't stay here forever. Since I've married Kat well. The place is just too small. You and Aresia have been crashing here since the Green Lantern Corps broke up. Catman says, if she doesn't get out of the bathroom in five seconds, I'll kill her. And Hal responds, John, I'm sorry, but I'm broke and jobs are hard to find. Who said anything about a job? Man, you've got a power ring. You're the only one left in this end of the universe who does. The Guardians are gone. Here on in, there ain't no more rules. John would go on to suggest Hal head to Africa... And steal some diamonds from oh. an abandoned mine in order to make ends meet. Oh. Uh, you know, <laughs> the, God, the Guardians wouldn't have dug that idea, but, you know, they were off getting their rocks They're off. They're not so here, right. are they? So. <laughs> uh, Hal is dubious of the suggestion, but decides, eh, what the heck. So Hal spouts that oath that we know so well and heads off Africa way. He finds some diamonds and considers what kind of person he's become if he steals them. Yeah, he thinks to himself, feels weird doing this. Copping gems is something the bad guys do. And I'm a good guy, aren't I? Without rules, it's hard to tell. He takes enough to cover rent and groceries for a little while and also to get him a Jesus piece. I don't know why. It seemed <laughs> weird, but that was uh, what he wanted. Before he can leave, however, he was spotted and attacked by some soldiers. He's able to disarm them with ease, and he flies away. He thinks to himself, I'm not sure... But I think I just broke a couple of local laws. Uh, you think, Hal? Maybe. <laughs> What's more, he continues thinking, and I don't feel a bit bad. Well, I guess we can put a check mark in the bad guy column for you. 
I wonder if that parallax already sunk in. Oh, Maybe I think so. Uh, back at John's apartment, Katma is making dinner, and she is approached by Star Sapphire. And Star Sapphire says, "You're Katma, aren't you?" And Katma says, "Star Sapphire, what are you doing here? You're not Hal Jordan, but you were a Green Lantern. You'll do." And with that. Star Sapphire murders Kat Matui. Kills her dead. Yikes. Later, Hal returns home, annoyed that it was so difficult to convert diamonds over to legal tender. <laughs> Wouldn't you figure that, that like, the consulate or whatever might want a couple forms of ID for that? <laughs> I'd like to know what he did. Like, did he go it's down like... to the docks or something and be like, oh, I guess I'll take, you know, $10 a pound, you know, whatever it is. It's like, hey, masked man, here's some money. <laughs> Well, and so he enters John's apartment, thankful that no one will be able to look at him as a charity case ever again. Well, now that's the least of your worries, there, Jordan. <laughs> Inside, he finds Hal hunched over, finds John hunched over, crying. John, what's wrong? Katma, my wife, she's dead, hacked to pieces, and it's your fault. Damn you, it's your fault. Mm-hmm. Then we move on to Action Comics Weekly number 602. That was May 31st, 1988. The cover features Green Lantern plummeting from the sky with the caption, Green Lantern Learns the Meaning of Fear. A scene that does not appear in this story, but should appear later. Uh, But not this one. It is uh, drawn by George Perez, though, so we will allow it. Uh, The story's called Requiem by Owsley and Kane, and uh, we pick up right where we left off. However, now, Katma's corpse is visible to the reader. That's it, buddy. Take a good long look. I don't want you to miss anything. It's not like she's going to get up and walk away, right? I mean, she's just lying there. One look would do, really. She's got more to it. Katma was a friend to you and a former Green Lantern, one of the first you'd ever met. Someone took her life today, Hal. Some maniac sliced her to pieces simply to tick you off. And it wasn't just some maniac, John continues. It was... Star Sapphire. Oh, my favorite maniac. That's yes. Uh, we flash back to John discovering Katma's body, and uh, we didn't realize this then, but Star Sapphire was still lingering outside the window. And she said, Tell Hal I was here. Show him what I've done. Bye. <laughs> back in the present, Hal looks as though he's about to throw up. And he says, I gotta get out of here. Smell starting to get to you? As Hal climbs out the window, he says, John, call the police. Get some help. Too late for help, my man. The lady's dead. Sort of puts a damper on our friendship, don't you think? I think that kind of went without saying, right? Yeah, I mean, shouldn't his priorities not be about his friendship with Hal? <laughs> but uh, with that, Hal flies off. Also, I got to say, smell starting to get to you is a kind of a raw thing to say about your dead wife. A little bit. <laughs> you know, stinking in, it's getting to you anyway. <laughs> so now we jump ahead a few days all the way to Katma's funeral. Yeah, the only representatives from the Corps to attend were John, Hal, Arisia, and Kilowog. And Arisia says to Kilowog, Hal called Guy Gardner Kilowog. Guy just laughed. Before I go into Kilowog, how funny is that? <laughs> it is. <laughs> Guy Gardner <laughs> laughing on the phone. laughed at him like, geez. Oh, Kilowog says, Gardner's a jerk, Arisia. Hal shouldn't have wasted his dime on that poser. Check out John trying to be a brick. Who's he kidding? Losing Cap must be cutting him up inside. Arizia tries to comfort John, but he just walks away. After the funeral ends, everybody leaves except Hal. 
He hears a maniacal laugh and looks up to see Star Sapphire having created a bulldozer that ran all the other guests into a nearby open grave. Jeez, lady. I mean, God, what are you... <laughs> Hal and Sapphire fight. Hal goes, Star Sapphire? Don't stand on ceremony, Hal. You can call me Carol. I came by for a visit the other day, Hal. You weren't home. I left a note. That's mean. Yep. Uh, as they tussle in the skies, Sapphire fires off a seemingly errant shot. It actually tags an F-14 jet, which sends it plummeting toward the city. Hal has to break away from the fight in order to take care of business, and in so doing, he loses Star Sapphire. Classic supervillain move right there. Mm-hmm. On the ground, the pilot of the down F-14 hands Hal a copy of the Coast City White Pages. Uh, you see, kids, the White Pages are where we used to be able to find residential phone numbers, because in the long ago, residences used to actually have phones connected to the homes. That's oh, cool. yeah. That's yeah. Amazing. Mm. Uh, Hal opens up the book and finds that Carol Ferris's information has been circled in red. <gasps> yep. that's, that's a lucky open, isn't it? Well, I know, really, just plop right to it. <laughs> then look at every other page. He's like, oh, wait, there's like five names a page circled in red. Anyway, uh, this serial killer is working overtime. Mm-hmm. Uh, Action Comics Weekly, number 603, June 7th, 1988, on sale date. Cover features Blackhawk by Kyle Baker, and this is titled Retribution by Owsley and Kane. We pick up moments after we left off. Hal is headed toward Cal- Carol Ferris's penthouse, and at that very same time, the news is reporting on the downed F-14. Yes. This just in, an Air Force F-14 jet crash-landed in downtown Coast City mere moments ago. Details are sketchy, but eyewitnesses have spotted a flying man at the scene who matches the general description of Green Lantern, a.k.a. John Stewart. Hey, props to Coast City for not even seeing color, man. Hey, nice. <laughs> Stewart cannot be reached for comment. An Air Force spokesman declined to comment on the incident, calling the possibility of a state-of-the-art military jet having been downed by a lone man unlikely. Nevertheless, the Air Force is requesting federal authorities to issue a warrant for Stewart's arrest. You see, at this point in time, John Seward's Green Lantern identity was public knowledge. Folks knew him as Green Lantern already, like right from the first day he got the ring. (laughs) So they simply assumed this was that same guy. Green Lantern is John Stewart, uh, which is sort of, I guess they never got a close-up look. Fine. Uh, (laughs) John was outed as Green Lantern by reporter Tawny Young back in Green Lantern Volume 2, number 188. That was May 1985, cover date. Worth noting that this was also the issue that featured the Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons backup, Mogo Doesn't Socialize, which is sort of mm-hmm. why Mogo is like one of the core characters of the Lantern Corn today. Yep. Uh, Hal crashes right through the window of Carol's penthouse apartment, and Star Sapphire's waiting for him outside. She smashes up the roof of the building, and Hal wills up a bubble to catch the falling debris. Carol whips up a pink construct of Cat Matui to taunt Hal. I think she's taunting the wrong lantern with that. I mean, yeah. Hal, Hal's more busy like, catching debris right now. Maybe she really doesn't be... see color either. Maybe that's what She it... might not. Props <laughs> to her. Uh, now, even after taking a punch from Construct Tui, Hal was able to hold the debris steady. Inside the barely being held together penthouse, Carol spills the beans on what prompted her attack. I loved you once, Hal. That was a long time ago. We were different people then. Now you belong to the Guardians of Oa, I to the Zamorans. The Owens led my people away, convinced them to abandon me. Revenge, Hal. My life is empty, meaningless. Someone's got to make the pain stop. 
Ah, she got my vote. Uh, <laughs> now, at this point, Hal notes that the actual star, star sapphire, as, as in the actual rock, the stone, mm. is only set in Carol's ring instead of actually being the ring. It's actually just a little thing that's set in her ring. Is this the first time I've ever fought? He never noticed this about the <laughs> ring? What's wrong with this guy? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure she like probably put it on the nightstand when they were together, You would right? think that. Get get I'll look yeah. at it at some point, you know? Like, they, they fought many times to this point. Many, many times. <laughs> So, uh, Hal blasts Carol's ring, unsettling that star sapphire setting, and uh, since he's still holding up the building with his ring... Wait, d- didn't he just fire his ring at the gem? <clears throat> since he's still holding up the building with his ring, he has uh-huh. no choice but to take Carol out the old-fashioned way, which is to say he backhands her. <laughs> <laughs> then, while she's on the ground, he slaps her around some more. And we mean that literally. He's just slapping her silly, just whack, whack, whack. It's like, whack, a, whack, like whack. a mad magazine <laughs> seat or something like that. <laughs> he thinks to himself, she's out of control. Deadly. The moment she gets her bearings, she'll regain command of her gem, and I'll be completely out of gas. I'm on the ropes. Nothing left. I'm not strong enough to imprison her while I sort this out. She's a threat to the entire planet. Human lives mean nothing to her. She's not the woman I once loved, just a twisted mockery of her. It's up to me, now or never, for the lives of untold innocents, Star Sapphire must die. But first, the police charge in into, hey. into a building, the top floor of a building that's falling apart and only being held together by glowing green bubble. Sure, that all <laughs> that's that all happen. happen. <laughs> that's, some, that's some very, very, uh, you know, risky police. Devotion to, yeah. their, uh, to their craft, yes. So, either way, Carol uses this distraction to cause her gem to erupt, sending purple energies all over the joint. And we wrap up with a repowered Star Sapphire standing over a Hal Jordan. Going right into Action Comics Weekly number 604 on sale June 14th, 1988. Cover features Wild Dog by Klaus Jansen, and this one's called I, the Jury by Owsley and Kane. We open with John Stewart in court before a tribunal. Yes, Senator goes, state your name for the record. John Stewart. Are you also known by any other name or alias, Mr. Stewart? Yes, I am known as Green Lantern. With an exclamation point, even. Yeah. Order in this court. (laughs) (laughs) The panel goes right into questioning John about his involvement with the F-14 being shot down. He assures them that the party responsible isn't him or any Green Lantern, but the Star Sapphire. I'm sorry, Miss Stewart. I don't know who this Sapphire woman is. I'm more concerned with your particular involvement in these incidents. Wasn't me. I wasn't there. Come again? Senator, I buried my wife several weeks ago. Star Sapphire killed her. She'd, been, she'd come gunning for Green Lantern, the other Green Lantern, the white guy. He goes on to explain how he'd always been the backup Lantern. Uh, when the real one was incapacitated, the ring would seek him out to fill his shoes. The senator goes, wait a minute, you're telling me... I don't have a power ring. I'm no longer a Green Lantern, and I'm certainly not a threat to anyone. The man you want is... Yes, yes, the white guy. Can you give us this white guy's name? Sorry, dude wears a mask. I called him Yo. Just then, Hal's Green Lantern ring appears in the courtroom and lands right in front of John. That's some awful timing. Uh, Also just then, Carol Ferris enters the courtroom. She claims that her penthouse apartment was just destroyed by Green Lantern. A black guy, Green Lantern. Uh-oh. Now, upon laying eyes on Carol, John sort of loses Well, like, he completely loses his he cool. He does, yeah, yeah. 
Carol, she, she's Star Sapphire. She killed my wife. He slides Hal's ring on his finger, then wills up a bubble around Carol's head. But please, someone can't breathe. Mr. Stewart, stop. No way, Senator. The lady is a killer. She puts on a good act. I'm not, I'm not cutting off her oxygen. Uh, cool story, John. Then tell us, why does she just slump to the ground dead? She's dead. Yeah, we just said that. John says, dead? No, she can't. I didn't. I wasn't trying to, thinks to himself, or was I? The power ring works on willpower. Could make my hate for this woman have made me just like her? John dives out a window to find some place where he could think, or or head back home, which almost certainly won't be the first place the authorities <laughs> really? come looking for him, right? Yeah. Uh, now, upon arrival, he worries a bit about how. After all, if John's got the ring, that means Hal's either KO'd or dead. Uh, inside his apartment, he is greeted by some purple energy blast and the voice of the Star Sapphire. Hi, John. Welcome home. John says, Carol, St- Star Sapphire's voice. Not so dead after all, huh? Dead enough to send you to jail, John. I never did like you, you know. The whole building comes toppling down before John can recharge his ring. After the dust and rubble settles, John can see a dead child among the wreckage. His thoughts instantly go to Katma. Uh, shouldn't Hal be the one reminded of his lover at the sight of a child? hey <laughs> <laughs> Now John uses his powered-up ring to slip by security at the local morgue so he can get a better look at Carol Ferris's corpse and also have a little chat. I should kill you. If I knew how, I'd do it now. The way things stand, I'm going to do time for murder anyway. Why Katma? Why the little girl? Blasted woman, why kill innocents if it's me you want? Carol's corpse opens her eyes and smiles broadly. (laughs) Just to see the look on your face, John. The guardians of Oa took the Zamorans, my people, away. Someone's got to pay for that, John. John reminds Carol that she's only the stand-in for the queen of of the Zamorans. To which Carol reminds him that he's just standing in for Hal Jordan. Ooh, sick burns all around, Sing, huh? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, later on at the cemetery. He's John's at Katma's grave and says, Hal Jordan's not responsible for your death, Katma. He was just a handy guy to blame. I'm not so sure he's completely off the hook, right? He has some, he has some culpability here, but yeah. A little bit. <laughs> uh, John, at this point, removes his lantern ring and just hurls it into the night. Just then, he finds himself surrounded by police, and he is arrested. This chapter concludes with a shot of Hal Jordan. He's on a barren planet, and he's actually chained to it. We learn that sending his ring to John was his last-ditch effort at getting off that rock. Well, we've got a little bit of bad news for yeah, you, pal. That worked uh, <laughs> and we close out this chapter with Hal being shot by a great big bolt of lightning. Takes us right to Action Comics Weekly number 605, June 21st, 1988. Cover features Dead Man by Adam and Andy Cubitt. Story is called Golgotha by Owsley and Kane. We open with uh, Carol Ferris climbing out of her grave. Wow, they buried her already. Yeah, they don't mess around. Must huh? be of the Jewish extraction. That's been in a couple of days. <laughs> now she calls for her gem and transforms back into the Star Sapphire. Whilst she's sealing up her own grave, she is confronted by this alien that looks like a cockroach. So we shift scenes to join Hal Jordan back on that barren planet where he's evidently be- becoming part of the welcoming committee. 
And Hal thinks to himself, Welcome to Golgotha, the end spot of the universe. Golgotha, a barren planetoid that exists outside the time continuum. Hours are like weeks, minutes like days. He wonders just how long he's been there. And I mean, he seems to have made the calculation, just, you know, do, do the math. Yeah. Uh, Golgotha, by the way, is a skull-shaped hill, the site of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, also known as Cavalry. Yes. Uh, now, Hal is struck by another jolt of lightning, and after hitting the ground, he's surprised to see that his power ring has returned. All right. He assumes that uh, John Stewart just declined to help because he's still ticked off, which yeah, it's as good a guess as any. <laughs> Uh, back on Earth, that cockroach alien somehow usurps Carol Ferris's star sapphire powers, and it wastes no time zapping her with them. Back on Golgotha, Hal is jolted a bunch more. So often he cannot focus enough to free, free himself from his chains. Finally, he wises up and just wills up an umbrella to block the lightning, then physically breaks the chains. He could go from, like, zero to 60 in no time flat, you know what I mean? Right? Just get, get his face beaten in for eons, and then suddenly, whoop, I'm done. Uh, now freed, Hal materializes his lantern battery, says the oath, and he's good to go. So he couldn't have done that while he was chained up? Nope, had to had to try John first, I don't know. <laughs> uh, back on Earth, Star, Star Sapphire comes to, and she is shocked to see Hal Jordan sitting on her tombstone, bobbling her bauble. What? You? But it can't be! Sure it can. Caught you napping, Carol. My powering led me right to you. Got your bubble. Hal, watch out! Behind you! Come on, lady. Hal ain't gonna fall for any of that nonsense. Only this time, it's not nonsense. Oh. We get a black panel, after which Hal realizes that Sa Star Sapphire has vanished. Mm -hmm. Into Action Comics Weekly, number 606, uh, June 28, 1988, on sale date. This one has its Superman cover by Kerry Gamble. This is called The List by James Owsley and Todd Smith. Now let's talk about Todd Smith a little bit. He's a graduate of the Kubert School who first found work at the art studio of Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin in Connecticut. He got the opportunity to ink some backgrounds for the fellow we met earlier in this episode, Gil Kane. Hey. He also did inks for Mark Texera on some DC-produced Master of the Universe mini-comics in 1981. These are the ones that were uh, pa uh, packaged with the... Uh, uh, characters when they first arrived in uh, his toys. With the place. action figures. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this first, his first penciling gig was on Omega Man number seven, October 1983 cover date, and he'd more or less remained in Omega Man until 1985, before he jumped over to Vigilante, where he remained until nearly the very end of that volume. Smith, he'd pencil the four-part Peacemaker miniseries, January through April 1988 cover dates, which takes us to right around where we need to be to discuss this very issue. So, Hal returns to John Stewart's apartment building and is surprised to see that it no longer stands. He assumes that John must have died during the collapse and figures that's why his ring came back to him on Golgotha. A bunch of looky-loos are lingering, so Hal tries to chat him up. Excuse me? Stay back! Other guy goes, keep away! One lady says, run for your lives! Hal wonders just what might have triggered this reaction, and uh, just then he happens to see today's newspaper headline. Green Lantern murders socialite. Hal thinks to himself, what's this? John? Accused of murdering Carol? Hal calls John at the prison to get the skinny. John suggests he clear this up quick. And, uh, oh yeah, he says... Don't call me again. <laughs> snaps, yo. Click. Uh, Hal wonders how he might be able to prove John's innocence and recounts his current lot in life. 
He's got no job, no home, no possessions. Horatius staying at the Green Lantern Corps' all citadel with Kilowog. So Hal decides the best place to start in his quest for the truth is checking in with his old buddy, Bruce Wayne. Over a Wayne matter, and Alfred answers the door and says, I'm afraid the master is not available at this time. Go away. Welp. So Bruce finally does relent and allows Hal inside. This is just so he can blow him off in person, though. Yeah, he says, you're looking for help. I can't give it. <laughs> and so next, Hal calls Clark Kent. Who blows him off far more politely. Yeah, he picks up and says, uh, yes, uh, Clark Kent speaking. Oh, Hal, hi, nice to hear from you. Uh, Hal, exactly what's going on out there in Coast City? I mean, first there's Katma's death, uh, then the plane crash, and all that destruction downtown. I mean, I don't mean to presume to tell you how to run your shop, Hal, but it looks pretty bad. You need a hand with something? Okay, Hal, as long as you're sure. Uh, dinner? No, I don't think so. I'm really swamped here, Hal. Gotta go. Hal, in thought while he hangs up the phone, thinks to himself, he's so polite. I feel like my dad just chewed me out. <laughs> uh, by the way, commit this little scene with Clark and Hal to memory. It's going to be tangentially important later on. All right. Not today, but later on. But later on. All right. <laughs> so Hal looks at his sad, sorry list of friends with a bunch of names already crossed out. Seems like he's already been turned down by Flash, Adam, Martian, Manhunter, Hawkman, and now Superman and Batman as well. I like how they were the last on the list. Right. Uh, you know, God, if Hawkman won't help me, I guess I'll call Batman now. Uh, now the, the only names left on this list not crossed out are Ollie and Dinah. So uh, next stop, Seattle. Uh, that night in Seattle, Ollie is taking care of business with a gang in a back alley. I was Ollie, the last person on it. I mean, he had a whole series with this guy. What is wrong with him? They, they were they lived together. They traveled the country together. Yeah, I mean, I, I know, I know they had kind of a weird, you know, they've had their times. But so anyway, uh, Hal lends Ollie a hand, an unwanted hand. Hi, Ollie. Mind if I play through? Yeah, pal. As a matter of fact, I really do. Nice to see you, Lantern. But. Do me a favor and beat it, okay? Man, that's mean. Uh, now, after the police come and collect the gang members, Hal and Ollie reconnect on a nearby rooftop. Uh, well, maybe reconnect is too strong a word. We'll just let them tell it. Yeah, Hal, uh, in mid-sentence, uh, so with John in jail and all my stuff gone, I'm down to zero. I've been looking around for a friend. I, I keep getting doors slammed in my face. So you figured you'd hit me up for a little sympathy. Maybe hang out here in Seattle for good times and male bonding. Come on, Al, get real. Your world just came apart, right? Fine. Go forward, not back. What? What you're looking for isn't in the past, man. Neither of us are the people we were when we hung out a year back. Dinah and I have got a nice thing happening here in Seattle. Be a pal and don't rattle the apple cart now. But... Get a life, Hal. Nice seeing you. And with that, Hal is left with no one else to turn to. I'm pretty sure Maxwell Lord would take him, right? Yeah, probably call, maybe even Gorilla Grodd at this point. We'll <laughs> <laughs> now, on that somber note, we jump to Action Comics Weekly number 607. This had a July 5th, 1988 uh, on, on sale date here. Uh, the Secret Six get the cover, and it's drawn by Steve Lionel. Story Inside is Guilty by Owsley and Smith. It's morning in Coast City, and Hal Jordan and Aresia are in their hotel bed. 
She's watching Oprah while Hal attempts to sleep in. The episode of Oprah has to do with reformed mass killers or born-again house invaders. <laughs> Oprah says, And why did you just kill everyone in the house, Leroy? To which Leroy goes, Well, uh, they were home. So Hal climbs out of bed lost in thought. He doesn't even hear Aresia suggest that Hal go on Oprah's show, but we'll get there, folks. Hal spouts the oath and lanterns up, and then he flies around the world to clear the cobwebs and also drop a bunch of catch-up exposition on any new readers that might be just joining us this issue. He winds up in the Middle East where a pair of rival factions both lay claim to some land. It's pretty likely this is an allusion to the conflict between Israel and Palestine, although it's probably in this case between Bialy and, uh, you know... <laughs> and Quarak. Yeah, Quarak, yeah. <laughs> the D.C. Middle East. Hal uses his powers to help a woman carrying a baby safely across the war zone. It's okay, miss. You're safe now. To which the woman strikes Hal in the face. Hmm. After using his ring to translate, here is what she had to say. I've read all about you, you murderer! Keep your filthy, blood-stained hands away from my baby! Hal then notices that the medics won't come anywhere near him. Everybody there is terrified of him. He leaves so the medics can, you know, go about doing their jobs. On the way back, he thinks about ways to better his reputation and then thinks back to that silly suggestion from his teenage girlfriend. Oh, yeah, maybe he ought to go on Oprah. And believe it or not, folks, that's exactly where we're headed. He calls wow. Oprah's producer and gets himself booked oh, on the show. right, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Next issue, Action Comics Weekly, number 608, on sale July 12th, 1988. Cover is a Green Lantern pinup by, Peter, uh, by Paul Smith. Story is called Where the Heck is Green Lantern by new writer Peter David with uh, the same artist, Todd Smith. Before we get down to the story, let's meet... Peter David. Peter Allen David, born September 23, 1956, in Fort Meade, Maryland. He's got two youngest siblings, a brother and sister. He spent his young life in Bloomfield, New Jersey, and the family moved to Verona, New Jersey, when he became an adolescent. David first became interested in comics when he was about five years old. He read copies of Harvey Comics, Casper and Wendy in a barbershop. He became interested in superheroes through the Adventures of Superman uh, TV series. His folks didn't approve of superhero comics, particularly those of Marvel, because the heroes look like monsters. And we're talking about the Thing and the Hulk. Right. Uh, Peter read these comics in secret, beginning with his first Marvel book, a very, very convenient one. Fantastic Four Annual Number 3, November right. 1965, cover date. This is, of course, the wedding of Weed, of Weed Richards. Of oh, Reed yeah. Richards I think that was the underground comics version yes. of that one, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, very convenient comic. Also, i got to say, some very attentive parents, because... My parents, they wouldn't have known whether I was reading a DC, Marvel, or anything, you know what I mean? They could care less. <laughs> I, I got a copy of uh, Dark Knight Returns for for Christmas when I was nine, and my, my folks yeah, didn't. They said, they said yeah. you like Spider-Man, right? Here you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so eventually, Peter's parents relented, and he came to love Superman. David attended the first his first comic book convention around the time that Jack Kirby's New Gods premiered. Uh, that was New Gods number one, February, March 1971, we're assuming. Uh, after asking his father to take him to one of Phil Suling's shows in New York, where David obtained Kirby's autograph. For more on Phil Suling, you can check out part one of our Weird Comics History, Look at the Direct Market, episode 30 in the archives. David's earliest interest in writing came through the journalism work of his father, Gunter. David began to entertain the notion of becoming a professional writer at age 12, buying a copy of the Guide to the Writer's Market in hopes of becoming a reporter. 
He attended New York University, NYU, and graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in journalism. His first professional writing assignment was covering the World Science Fiction Convention held in Washington in 1974 for the Philadelphia Bulletin. Peter David's first published fiction was in Asimov's Science Fiction magazine. This was uh, sold in, He also sold an op-ed piece to the New York Times, but received far many more rejections and acceptances. David came to work in book publishing, and his first publishing job was for the E.P. Dutton imprint Elsevier Nelson, where he worked mainly as an assistant to the editor-in-chief. He later worked in sales and distribution for Playboy paperbacks. He would lose interest in comics as a teenager. However, that was rekindled when he saw a copy of Superman vs. Muhammad Ali from 1978 while passing a newsstand, and then later X-Men number 95, October 1975, cover date. And he discovered in that latter book that the uh, all-new, all-different team had first appeared in Giant Size X-Men, uh, number one, May 1975, cover date. Uh, these would be the first two comics he purchased in rather a while. Uh, he would work for Marvel's sales department under Carol Kalish and would eventually succeed her as sales manager. He unsuccessfully tried submitting stories for Moon Knight to editor Denny O'Neill, uh, probably not so much for not for quality reasons, but probably uh, crossing the streams type of thing, yeah. or keeping sales and creative separate. Uh, three years into his tenure as direct sales manager, James Owsley, the fellow we met earlier, became the editor of the Spider-Man titles. Owsley was impressed with how David had not previously hesitated to work with him when Owsley was an assistant editor under Larry Hama. So, when he became an editor, he purchased a Spider-Man story from David, which appeared in the spectacular Spider-Man number 103, June 1985 cover date. He would then purchase The Death of Gene the Wolf. That was Spectacular Spider-Man 107 through 110, October 1985 through January 1986 cover date. A landmark story and probably my favorite ever Spider-Man oh, yeah. story. Uh, now, David would start a long and storied run on Marvel's Incredible Hulk. And during that same time, he was a freelancer, which uh, allowed him to have a relatively brief stint here. Yeah. Oh, and uh, we open the, the issue on Oprah's set. Green Lantern is running late because, uh, well, Hal's an idiot. What is this, uh, Oprah Winfrey Weekly now? What's going on here? <laughs> well, on that note, Oprah oh. Winfrey, born Orpa, Orpa Gail Winfrey, uh, January 29, 1954, in Kosciuszko, Mississippi. Uh, Orpa is a name from the Book of Ruth in the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> Oprah says, my name had been chosen from the Bible. My Aunt Ida had chosen the name, but nobody really knew how to spell it. So it went down as Orpa on my birth certificate. But people didn't know how to pronounce it, so they put the P before the R in every place else other than the birth certificate. On the birth certificate, it's Orpa, but then it got translated to Oprah. So here we are. Her first appearance, Mad Magazine, number 275, December 1987. Nope, no, 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 no. We're not, we're not doing this. So not for Oprah. Give me a break here. So you're telling me I watched The Color Purple for nothing? Not for nothing. You watched it for the tour de force performance of it's true. Oprah it's Winfrey. True. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, after shaving it and lantern up, Hal heads over to Chicago. Along the way, he runs into some peeps, some would-be armored car robbers. He scares them with a King Kong-sized gorilla construct. Finally, he arrives at Oprah's studio with a whole three seconds to spare. Hello, Miss Winfrey. Uh, sorry, I was almost late. Armored car trouble. Ooh, you, you, ooh, I order. After some pleasantries, the interview begins. Begin by explaining the Carol Ferris incident. Well, to begin with, yeah, I have to understand that once there were many Green Lanterns throughout the universe. Go on. 
We jump ahead a little bit, so we miss out on Hal would have explained the Ferris deal to a national audience. Yep. Uh, and Oprah begins soliciting questions from the audience. Yeah, lady says, I was wondering, as the only Green Lantern, are you going to do any recruiting? I look good in green. I'm afraid not. Even when multiple lanterns were possible, there really was only supposed to be one for Earth. Me. Now that brings up a question. Why you, of all people? What's your secret? Well, I was chosen because I'm totally without fear. And after a pause, the audience erupts in laughter. What's so funny? I gotta say, uh, he doesn't look totally without fear right now. He sure doesn't. (laughs) The laughing seems to have gotten to him, yeah. Uh, Action Comics Weekly number 609, July 19, 1988, on sale date. Cover features Black Canary settling her her old uniform on fire, drawn by Brian Boland. Cutting Remarks is the name of this story by David and Smith. Note, this is the first time Green Lantern isn't the lead-off story in Action Comics Weekly. It's actually the closer this time around. So they are fiddling oh, with... We do discuss f- that one, yes. They, 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 for- do, uh, they format a little bit. So uh, we open with a deranged man purchasing a samurai sword. It evidently is not a crappy replica because he tests the blade's hone by slicing into his own palm. The proprietor of the weapon shop suggests he's crazy for doing so and gets disemboweled for this remark. Uh, hmm. But basically didn't remove the try to remove the sword from a anyway. But uh, the <laughs> the deranged gentleman still leaves the cash for the blade, which is makes it makes everything above board. Honor, yeah. Yep, and uh, walks out of the shop. Meanwhile, at that moment on Oprah, Oprah, I don't see anything funny in this. Oh, Green Lantern, come on. If you don't want to tell us how you went, you were chosen to be Green Lantern, that's fine. After all, I'm sure you weren't expecting a Spanish Inquisition. No one expects that. Nah, nah, screw it. But that business about being without fear. But it's true, Oprah. I'm not afraid of anything. But that's absurd. To be fearless, you'd practically have to be a mental case. That's not you. Hal's thoughts immediately jump to Guy Gardner, but, you you know, a mental case. Uh, His thoughts are interrupted by a psychologist in the audience. Yeah, she says, I'm Dr. Stephanie Cole, a psychologist. I'd like to point out that one of the most basic aspects of humans is self-preservation, motivated by a fear of dying. If you're not afraid of dying, then then QED you lack the most basic human instinct. QED, by the way, means quad erat demonstratum, Latin for that which was that which was to be demonstrated. Yeah. So, in in other words, QED almost never needs to be said aloud unless you really want to appear smarter than you actually Literally, are. It's just it's like that, yeah. that which exists, you know. So it's in yeah. a way. Uh, Hal begins to float out of his chair and into the crowd. My ring has an automatic feature that, in extremities, pres- preserves my life. So dying isn't really a major concern. And you know that doesn't really ingratiate <laughs> how with the crowd the way he hoped they would. They uh, also think he's kind of full of crap. Yes, another lady in the crowd goes. I thought a hero is someone who overcomes their fears and does what just has to be done. If you don't do that, Lantern, you're no hero. You just, I don't know, thick. Hal then compares himself to a police officer, which. Doesn't really go over well with the wife of a plainclothes officer in the crowd. Oh, um, after all, you might have noticed her husband doesn't have a ring that keeps him safe. That's uh, they, they like that. So Hal apologizes and assures the woman that he doesn't think he's any better than her husband. Speaking of whom, we switch scenes to a donut shop where a couple of policemen are watching Oprah. You know, like you do. All the other yep. cops love it on Oprah. <laughs> they can't get enough. 
Now, one of these officers is Joey Joey Howe, the husband of that nag on television. Uh, just then, the deranged swordsman from the beginning of the chapter bursts through the donut shop window, and he slices and dices everyone in his path. By now, Howe's appearance on Oprah is over, and as he flies off, he recounts the bizarre day he just had. He thinks to himself, that was all very strange. I've, I've been fearless for as long as I can remember. It's my greatest asset as a test pilot. Then again, if I were a passenger on a commercial flight and the pilot told me he had no fear of crashing, would that put me at ease? Probably not. I'd want someone in the cockpit who would be afraid of such an incident and do whatever they could to avoid it. Is something wrong with me? Am I blocking something that would cause me to be afraid? What's it like to be afraid? My God, I don't know. Uh, he was just flying for a long time, obviously. All many this, miles, many yeah, miles. Yeah, this dialogue, you know, found himself back where he started, actually, and was like, whoa, <laughs> hey, hello. Uh, he now notices the commotion with that samurai going on below, and so he lands, removes his ring, and approaches the bad guy. Uh, and we're going to leave this on a little bit of a cliffhanger while we take a break and think about what we've just read. Mm-hmm. Come back and wrap up the other issues, 610 to 614, for this episode. But recently, I was in Rome. Uh, Just last weekend, I was in Rome for this event that De Quincey Jones was having. And obviously, our show isn't on in Rome. This is so funny. So I'm at the Louis Vuitton store, and I'm with, it's it's Reggie, who does my makeup, Andre, my best friend, Gail, and Gail's daughter. And Gail's daughter was just turning 18. So I said to Kirby, we're going to go shopping, and you can have anything you want. And, um, which is, she's deserved it. She's a really nice girl. She's just gotten into Stanford, and she's a really smart kid. So, and I know she's going to be reasonable with it. So we're at the Louis Vuitton store, and we see this cute little Louis Vuitton bag. And so uh, she says, you know, I, I, I'd like to have that bag. And I say, okay. So we say to the sales guy, this is the bag. We'd like to have this bag. And he said, no, madame, this bag cannot be sold. This bag cannot be sold. It's impossible. It's impossible for this bag to be sold. We say, but the bag is right there. It's on the shelf. <laughs> That's, that's never happened to me, you know? <laughs> and the bag said, so he says, no, 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 no. This bag is for the Italian people. It's only for the Italian people. And perhaps you can go to your country and you can find the bag in your country. So then we're like, <laughs> the bag is only for the Italian people? What? What kind of bull is that? <laughs> no, so, but no, we don't, we don't, nobody says anything. We all just start like looking at each other. Like, did you hear what he said? <laughs> and Gail said, Gail said, they obviously don't get the Oprah show. <laughs> he needs a sign. <laughs> okay, so we're we're stunned. So Reggie, who is a joke a minute, he goes, well, we need to go find some Italians to come in here and buy this bag. <laughs> so we continue to argue with the guy, like, well, okay, well, what can we do? No, 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 no. So we're like, well, can we see the manager? No, 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 no. I cannot disturb the manager because you cannot have this bag. <laughs> you cannot have this bag. So by this time, we really want that bag. <laughs> this is the only bag I want in all the world. So actually, what happens is he says, we, I convince him, no, the four of us convince him that you need to get the manager here. So he says, I will call the manager. I will call the manager, and we can see if we can sell you this bag. And he calls the manager, and he's like, <laughs> he does that. 
still we can't have the bag. So we go get our, our guide, Angelo, who is Italian. We bring him in. Would you please try to explain to the man that we like the bag, and he's Italian. So then they get into this whole big thing, and he's going, no, 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 no. <laughs> no. So then they bring the manager out, and the manager finally says, we can have that bag. We can have the bag. So thank you very much. So then Kirby's standing there, and she's just looking at the bag, and she says, mm. <laughs> I go, Kirby, is there a problem? She goes, well, I really wanted the brown one with the LVs on it that's in the window. And he goes, no! No, 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 impossible. He goes, there is no way we can open the front window. We cannot open the window. There's no way you can get the bag in the window. He goes, I cannot even discuss it. I cannot discuss it. I cannot discuss it. I cannot discuss it. So we're there. So I say, OK, Kirby, we're all like, you don't want this bag? We just spent a half an hour to get the bag and the manager and the Italian police, and you still she said, no, I don't want to get the bag because what I really wanted was the brown one, and so I won't take it because that's not really the one I wanted. So then they go off and they have another conversation. And I think that was the Oprah Winfrey conversation <laughs> that the guy had with him. So he comes back and he goes, Madame, you may have the bag with pleasure. <laughs> Reggie, you said, and we all will be served champagne. Champagne! Yeah. <laughs> champagne. Everybody will have champagne. It's going to be wonderful. No problem, man. Yeah. No problem, man. Yeah, no, no problem, problem, man. No problem, no problem. <laughs> so funny, but Reggie was like, we need to get some Italians in here <laughs> to talk to him. So we ended up, so the man, the man said, would you all like champagne? We go, yes, we do. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. We are going to wrap up our Action Comics weekly titles for this week's episode. Uh, we do have more coming uh, for the rest of this month. But we're going to jump right back into Action Comics weekly number 610, July 26, 1988, on sale date. The cover has Dead Man, depicting Dead Man, drawn by David Lloyd. And the title of this story is Risky Business by Peter David and Todd Smith. Uh, now he remember a de-ringed Hal as uh, he he just landed ready to deal with this whole samurai sword wielding guy that hacked up a cop in a donut shop. Uh, the de-ringed Hal attacks the samurai sword wielding lunatic, and still he's not afraid. Even without the ring, he's not afraid. The swordsman, however, is quite afraid. Yes, <laughs> Hal kicks the samurai guy low, and uh, he goes down. And he says, "I was I was going to work." How did I? Hal thinks to himself, odd. He sounds completely confused now, like like he just woke up or something. After handing the fellow over to the police, Hal slips his ring back on and flies off, all the way to the police station himself, so he could uh, offer Chicago's finest a hand. <laughs> the officer says, hey, Fearless, I heard you weren't using the ring anymore. I'm Fearless, not stupid. Uh, does everyone watch Oprah for, for one right? thing? And for another <laughs> thing... Hal took the ring off one time. You know, just a, what is that, a lifelong commitment? Give me a break. For like less than a minute. Not even a minute. And, yeah, it was like one hit. One punch, and he was like, no, I'm not afraid, blink, you know. <laughs> now, the officer takes Hal into the records room so he can do some research on that samurai from earlier. 
His name's Morris Levine. Except for one parking ticket two years ago, he's squeaky clean. Hal returns to his and Aresia's hotel room and informs her that they're going to be sticking around Chicago for a little while. His run-in with this samurai guy makes him think that there's something going on here. Aresia isn't that happy that they're staying. She's also rather annoyed at how Al Hal was mocked on Oprah. Those women on the show had a point. Is it possible to be completely fearless without being a nut? Am I normal? He says to his 16-year-old girlfriend. Uh, back at the police station, Lieutenant Rensselaer, that's the fellow following up on the samurai guy, receives a note. He goes, I caused a man to run wild with a sword. If the city doesn't meet my demand of $500,000, then I'll, I'll turn more citizens into homicidal maniacs. Agree to my terms via the media by 6 p.m., or I'll strike again. It's signed, Mind Games. And at this, hmm. Rensselaer smirks, crumples up the note, and throws it away. Back at the hotel, Hal orders room service. We wrap up the meal being delivered by a homicidal maniac. Hey. Uh, Arisa is about to answer the door because Hal's uh, indisposed, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Brings us right to Action Comics Weekly number 611 on sale August 2nd, 1988. This is a cover by uh, Alex Nino of Superman. Uh, story, Room Service by David and Smith. Aresia answers the door and a knife-wielding room service guy busts in. Aresia says, Hal, it's for you. It's pretty cute, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Hal replies with, Can't hear you, hun. I'm in the shower. Yeah, sure you are. Yeah. Uh, Aresia and the room service guy fight for a bit with the lunatic managing to pin her to the ground. As he lowers the knife toward her, she plunges it into a nearby wall socket and fries that fella but good. Hal wonders why Aresia didn't scream or call for help. Could have sworn she did that. Yeah, what did you think that right? was when she called your name? And said yeah. That? Uh, she replies claiming that she missed being in the thick of it, and the fight was the first fun time she'd had in weeks. In fact, from some of the first comic time she's had. Anyway, uh, Hal, Hal bundles the butler up, uh, and he and Aresia escort him down to the Chicago Police Department. Hal wants to chat with Rensselaer, and he's directed out to the dumpster. Out behind the police department, Rensselaer is digging through the garbage for that note he'd thrown out last issue. <laughs> While waiting inside the station, Aresia is chatted up by a modeling agent, Cynthia Gresham. She thinks Aresia has a look that's, quote, out of this world. Meanwhile, elsewhere, a man pushes a button which triggers a satellite, which fires a beam, which strikes Hal Jordan. We wrap up with Hal gone nuts, and he looks as to, to be just about ready to strangle the lieutenant. Which takes us to the next issue, Action Comics Weekly, number 612, on sale August 9th, 1988. Cover is Secret Six by Paul Gulacy. Uh, story is called Mind Over Matter by David and Smith. A maniacal Hal lunges at the lieutenant with murder in his eyes. After a brief tussle, we're left with Hal pointing his ring and the officer pointing his gun. Back inside, Cynthia Gresham tries to sell Aresia on the idea of becoming a model by showing her pictures of Corey Anders, mm. who we know as a Starfire from the new Teen Titans. Aresia says, Modeling? What would my boyfriend say? 
Oh, we can think of a few things. <laughs> Back outside, the maddened Hal attempts to blast Rensselaer to ashes, but his ring just won't do it, and so he runs away. <laughs> Rensselaer gives chase and tackles him before he gets too far. By now, though, Hal is back to quote-unquote normal. And now Lucid Hal explains. My ring is powered by willpower. My willpower. Mind game supplanted my willpower and substituted his own murderous incentives. So there was nothing to power the ring. Essentially, that's why it didn't work. Uh, fair enough. Uh, we're not going to argue with that one. <laughs> In fairness, we'd have to be awake to do that. Yeah, I'm not even worried about how he knows the guy's name is Mind Games. Yeah. That's fine. Right? Whatever. <laughs> so they notice a loose dog that runs off with the note from Mind Games. <laughs> My dog ate my note. <laughs> anyway, uh, back inside, Aresia tells Hal that she and Cynthia are going for dinner, and Hal stays behind to follow up. Just then, Mind Games works as Mojo and has a mind-controlled loon take control of the 6 o'clock news. Lunatic asks for $500,000 to be delivered to Mind Games, and then an added twist. As the loon goes, but just to prove that I mean business, within 30 seconds and for a two-minute period, one-tenth of this city's population will go insane. Do we uh, make a Chicago joke here right now or what? I think we might have just done that. I think we uh, did, actually. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, now, Hal takes off into the sky for a better vantage point on the city. At that same time, Cynthia, the modeling agent, goes nuts and attempts to murder Aresia by... Plunging a spoon into her chest. Not the best weapon, no. No, no, no. Uh, Aricia KOs the dame and heads outside. She finds that madness has overrun the streets. Meanwhile, Hal uses his ring to trace the origin of the nutso beam and follows it right to its source and destroys it. Yes, mind game goes, You've destroyed my ray gun. Do you have any idea how long it took to build it? And he then reveals that the ray gun wasn't even the actual source. No, 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 that power comes from within himself. And we uh. close out with Mind Games blasting Hal. <laughs> now to Action Comics Weekly number 613 on sale August 16th, 1988. Cover depicts Nightwing drawn by Mike Kaluta. This is titled Head Trip by David and Smith. We pick up inside Hal Jordan's head. Uh, he's flying through some pink astral plane surrounded by several faces from his past, including Sinestro, Black Hand, Star Sapphire, Hector Hammond, and a bunch of his lantern partners. He is haunted by acute emotions, starting with... Hatred. He blasts away mercilessly at his villainous foes. You think you know about death? I'll show you death! And then we move on to... Guilt. Stood surrounded by dead villains... Hal begins to show remorse. What have I done? Sinestro, come back. Don't be dead. I'll, I'll bring you back to life. That's it. I, I, I can do anything I want to. Anything. Well, not anything, Hal. I mean, now surrounded by his fellow lanterns, Hal's reminded that he cannot restore life. Tomar Ray says, You've betrayed your oath as a green lantern, Hal Jordan. You must be tried for your crimes. It's almost like he can see into the future. Mm. Uh, next next uh, emotion we feel is jealous rage. And Hal lashes out. Who are you to judge me? Just who in the hell do you think you are? Green lanterns? Green with envy is more like it. And he clamps vices around all the lanterns. Sick burn, though, for yeah. sure. Uh, the next emotion, passion. Oh, yeah. uh, so Hal's now confronted by Aresia, and uh, 
she's not wearing all that much. Uh, we're talking bra, panties, fishnets, and heels type. Not wearing all that much here, folks. I think we can get in trouble for owning this. Yeah, I think I might have to burn my copy. Mm. Ar- Arisha says, Hal, Hal, it's me, Arisha. Come to me, lover. And they kiss. Hal goes, what, what happened to you? You're, you're, just, you're just a kid. But I always was. Yeah. Uh, in the distance, Star Sapphire steps over Kat Matui's dead body, which brings us to the emotion of fear. And here, Star Sapphire and Hal embrace and start to make out, but then she raises a knife to his back. <gasps> back to reality, or close to it, Hal comes to and punches <laughs> mind games. And uh, that's that. Uh, he delivers the bad guy to the police station until a representative from the JLI can shut his powers down for good. That's it. Uh, Hal heads back to the hotel, and he is surprised to find Aresia is not there. That's because she's accepting a modeling gig with Cynthia What's-Her-Face's agency. Right, right. Uh, So Hal just hangs out and has a chat with his ring. I wish I knew why I was without fear. Interrogative from ring bearer? Uh, yes. Yes, I I do. I I mean, I am. Uh, Why am I without fear? Your ring bearer is fearless as per instructions. Instructions? What does that mean, as per instructions? Whose? Another interrogative? Yes, I I command you, Power Ring. Show me what you're talking about. And with that, Hal vanishes without his ring. Uh, That brings us right to Action Comics Weekly, number 614, on sale August 23rd, 1988. Cover, it's Green Lantern by Mike Mignola. Story is called Bring Me a Man by David and Smith. Hal materializes, well, sort of. He's kind of doing that whole uh, It's a Wonderful Life kind of mm-hmm. gig, you know. Yeah. Uh, he's standing right before a dying Abin Sir. The ring says, Yes, ceased ring bearer Abin Sir chose yourself to be new Green Lantern. However... However? What do you mean, however? Let the ring finish, man. He's in the middle of a right? sentence. <laughs> however, Abin Sir's thought processes were chaotic. There were orderly procedures to follow that he ignored. The guardians of Oa should have chosen successor. In his extremity, Abinser was confused and frightened. All he could think of was that his end was imminent. The dying Abinser is crawling toward his power battery. He says, Ring, heed my last command. Bring me man who is totally without fear. And what do you know? The ring found two. That's right. Guy Gardner and Hal Jordan. But wait, there's more. Instructions were to bring a man without fear. Subject Jordan was a man, certifying first requirement, but subject was not completely without fear. For example, subject possessed fear of death that motivated basic self-preservation. Other minor fears as well. Like, uh, probably like balloons and cucumbers. Ooh, and clowns, right? Brr, these, these fears, however minor, ran contrary to the instructions. And here comes the other shoe dropping. So the ring rectified this inconsistency. Subject Jordan was made a man without fear, as per instructions. Which means, Hal says, are you, are you telling me that Abinser's ring lobotomized me? Well, you know, it's not really as bad as all that, because technically, if it had been a lobotomy, uh, part of his brain tissue would have been cut away. So, 
Details. Details. More of a shifting, I would say. Really. Yes. <laughs> uh, back out on the street, we run into a gleeful Aresia. Wow, did she always have this mullet? Uh, kind of, but never never quite this really pronounced. Quite I mean, this is wild. Really flowy here. I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> and she uh, she runs into a man on the ledge of a building, and he's uh, he's about to, or she can see him anyway, and, she, and he's about to jump. Uh, we go back to the inside of the hotel. Hal Jordan demands the ring make him the way he was. Uh, just then he hears the yelling outside, and without thinking, he jumps out of the hotel room window and plummets. Uh-oh, you see... Hal Jordan, the test pilot, is afraid of heights. Uh, I mean, not exactly, but the cumulative effect of all his repressed fears bubbling to the surface is making him question everything. So uh, he manages to overcome that fear sort of enough so he can fly anyway. Hal flies over to the jumper and sits on the ledge where he is standing. The jumper says, what was that all about? Just, Just a case of nerves. You? Nerves? Come on, everybody knows you super guys aren't afraid of anything. I know what you were trying to do. Oh, really? Turns out the fellow thinks this is all a big production to show that Green Lantern knows and understands how scared the jumper himself is. (laughs) That's right, it was all a weird passive-aggressive trick. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's enough to get him to climb back into the window. And we close out this chapter and this episode with Hal being regaled by the crowd below. And uh, with Hal learning that you don't need to be fearless after all. And after this, there will be no more problems for Hal Jordan. It'll be clear (laughs) sailing. Uh, Yeah, that's the first part of our look at uh, the the Green Lantern section, Hal Jordan's uh, story in the Action Comics weekly series. Uh, I'd say we have a... I'd say we have... Three episodes at least left to go. Probably, yeah. uh, might turn into five. We'll see how we split it up. But I think what's interesting about this, looking at this, looking or reading this again, is that you see, you know, this isn't necessarily his, except for you know, he does kind of a dubious moral thing in the beginning, and he's questioning his uh, fear. This is like the road yeah. to parallax, you know. Uh, it almost seems like that, doesn't it? I think I think even though just from the internal creative side, as it looked at it, they were like, wow, we just did a lot of crazy stuff with Hal Jordan. <laughs> we pretty much can't steer out of it, so let's just steer right hard into steer it. Steer right in. And uh, that's sort of where it goes. And, and you'll see a little, it doesn't get less wacky from here, folks. It, it's a good time. It's so uh, we'll be back next week with another chunklet of these stories. If you have memories of these stories or you want to write to us about... Uh, um, how much you like Green Lantern and how much you can't stand Green Lantern, you can check us out at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Uh, you know, we have a Patreon. If you like what we do and you want to support us, chip in over at patreon.com slash Chris and Reggie. We have some exclusive content every month, at least three exclusive shows, and uh, that's all really we have. But, you know, you, we are, you'll have our undying gratitude. It's also true. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook over at facebook.com slash cosmic T-Mill history. And uh, you can insta us on Instagram at cosmic T-Mill. We're on Twitter at cosmic T-Mill as well. And I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Uh, you can check out our weekly writings on newer DC comics and some classics as well over at weirdsciencedccomics.com. And Chris does a daily blog post at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com where he reviews a different DC comic every single day of the week. Now have broken that 1,000th comic barrier. You're finally getting into my wheelhouse and we're doing some real <laughs> wacky ones, boy. Woo! I've been loving seeing these these uh, Silver Age honeys, so you got to go over there. Check that out. chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. 
You can also check us out at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com where you'll find all of our show notes, our links, our images, all that good stuff, as well as a chronological listing of all of our programming. A lot more easy to read than anywhere else on the internet. Oh, yeah. uh, if you're if you're looking for uh, to follow uh, any threads of the show, uh, that's where to go for sure. Yeah, whenever we say check episode whatever in our archives, that's a, that's our archives. <laughs> that's our, uh, that's the comics. easiest way yeah, to do it. Weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com and while you're over there and uh, you're thinking about buying Christmas presents or maybe something else to cover your uh, head, chest, and legs, uh, <laughs> go click that banner to 80stees.com. We've partnered with them. See if you like what they've got. And if you like what they've got, then feel free to purchase some of it. And that will give us a hand. It will give you a hand. Hopefully it will sure. make someone in your life smile. And everyone will be just pleased as punch to have brand new T-shirts. But win, I, win, win. Everyone wins, I, I, I'd like <laughs> to say. So uh, I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? I think that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill weekly. See ya. Something sinister sits in the corner. Ignore it if you want, but remember that we warned you. They're in the basement, behind the furnace. Feeding off all of your fear so I can flourish. Puts the shook in your bones. Making all my noise when your parents ain't home. And if the bulbs burnt out in my underground lair, guaranteed you're gonna sprint back up them stairs. Step by step by, let me get by. It's all in your mind. You do it every time. The dark you stare. Is anybody there? Try to stay strong. Pray for help. Well, you can bring that fear. I survive on it. I thrive on it. I'm alive as you allow. When I climb out of your mind to eat your time, you can redeem your fear. And all the white girls sing along. Mm-hmm.